Hello everyone, welcome to this podcast, which is a follow-up to the very successful IFSI conference on 14th of June 2022 at Sadler's Hall in London. This podcast is a summary slash follow-up to breakout session two, where we considered ethical issues for general counsel facing issues of potential corporate wrongdoing. My name is Andrew Pavlovich. I'm a partner at CM Murray, specialising in professional discipline and regulation matters, with a particular specialism in SRA and legal regulation. Joined today by Timothy Dutton, CBE QC, leading authority in professional discipline matters, acted both for and against the SRA in some of the biggest cases to reach the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal and the courts. We have Catherine Murray, partner at Walbrook. She has substantial experience advising on transactional and compliance matters for private equity and financial institutions. In addition to which, she is the firm's general counsel, leading the firm's legal and compliance functions. And finally, we have Kathy James, OBE. She's a founding partner at specialist whistleblowing firm, James and West, formerly chief executive of the UK Whistleblowing Charity and Legal Advice Centre Protect. But she's, she has played a key role in shaping government policy in the area of whistleblowing. So why did we choose to talk about this subject? Well, there's been a number of issues recently and topical cases which have called into the question the role of in-house lawyers. So we have the post office scandal, which is currently being investigated, where there are issues around what in-house counsel knew about the, the wrongful prosecution of many postmasters for theft and fraud and the role that they may have played in covering up or at least not bringing to the attention what they knew about what was going on. Uh, we have the recent RIC scandal where an in-house counsel was heavily criticised by an independent QC for their conduct of an internal investigation. And we also have the P&O Ferries scandal involving a mass uh, sacking of their workforce without consultation and questions being asked there about in-house counsel what advice they gave and assuming they gave the correct advice and uh, the chief executive or the management decided to go through and, and do what they did anyway what ethical and regulatory dilemmas that put the in-house counsel team in so just in order to set the scene i was going to ask tim can you provide a brief overview of the, the regulatory regime that applies to in-house lawyers in the UK? Um, thank you very much, Andrew. Um, well, the regulatory regime that applies to lawyers, I'm going to describe by reference to the duties of solicitors. There aren't meaningful differences between solicitors, barristers, and Silex members employed in-house. So I'll, I'll use my framework as the duties of solicitors. All lawyers who are regulated in England and Wales fall under the Legal Services Act 2007 jurisdiction, which under section one requires professionals to comply with the professional principles. And that, that requires them to act with independence and integrity to maintain proper standards of work and to act in the best interests of their clients. There's also an obligation to keep client affairs confidential. Any solicitor with a practicing certificate 
will be regulated by the SRA. And that, of course, includes all in-house solicitors with practicing certificates, are bound by the SRA Code of Conduct 2019. And the principles which apply to all such solicitors are or should be well known. First, you must uphold the constitutional principle of the rule of law and the proper administration of justice. Second, you must uphold public trust and confidence in the profession. Third, you must act with independence. Fourth, with honesty. Fifth, with integrity. Sixth, in a way which encourages equality and diversity. And seventh, in the best interests of each client. The difficulty that is often seen to arise for in-house counsel and lawyers is the apparent tension, some often say conflict, between the duty of loyalty and good faith to your employer and the duties which apply pursuant to your regulatory framework. Now, the regulatory duties are statutory. They're made under Section 79 of the Solicitors Act, and you can't therefore derogate from them. That in turn means that where there is a tension between your duty as an employee to, and your duties under the code, if you were to prefer what you perceive to be your duty as an employee, you might well be acting in breach of a regulatory duty, such as the duty of integrity, which could in turn lead to very serious disciplinary consequences. Now that tension is something which I'm sure others will talk about, but I'd like to make this point. Directors of companies are themselves the fiduciaries of companies. They are bound to act with loyalty and good faith and in the best interests of the company. That, those duties are now codified under sections 170 to 177 of the Companies Act. And the question as to whether a board and its directors are acting in the best interests of the company and in accordance with their fiduciary duties is not subjectively determined. In other words, where a company says to its lawyer, it's in our interests as a company to do things this way, even though you advise against it, that assertion may itself simply be wrong because, because the acting in the best interest as the director may perceive it may actually be not the case. To take the example you gave Andrew of P&O, and without going into the facts in too much detail, it was perceived by P&O that not consulting would be in the best interest of P&O because they could replace the workforce and off they go, thank you, to a better financial horizon. Of course, the reality was that by not having the right qualified workforce in place, their ships couldn't sail and their best interests, one might objectively perceive, were not served. But the tension which arises for employed in-house counsel is undoubtedly 
on many occasions a real one. The important point to end this short section on is this. Where a lawyer perceives that he's not discharging his regulatory duties uh, when advising or acting for his employer, he or she must say so, and if needs be, uh, rather than compromise those duties, ultimately resignation would be the option. But second, we must keep in mind that officers of companies are themselves bound by fiduciary duties, and when one tests commercial assertions against what is ultimately in the best interest of a company, one may well find that the commercial assertion does not withstand the test. I hope that gives you enough by way of a brief outline. Yes, it does. It's very helpful. And um, we were joined last month by Mathilde Hubeille, who's a French advocate. She's also New York qualified. And she was explaining that in-house counsel in France are not subject to the same regulation as advocates because the French system does, doesn't recognise them as being sufficiently independent. So you know, the French system doesn't think that that conflict can be managed effectively, although there is some ongoing discussion about that and attempts to perhaps change that, mainly because uh, as a result of that in-house counsels, communications are, are not privileged in France. So turning to you next, Catherine, I mean, Tim's obviously set, that, set out all of the, the law and the, the way that the interests potentially conflict. Do you think it's easier or harder, given that, for in-house solicitors to comply with their regulatory obligations? So I almost certainly think it's, it's harder. Um, there is, as Tim so eloquently pointed out, this dual role that you sit in as an in-house lawyer. And I see it both myself in my role as general counsel for our firm, and also I see it play out in some of the situations that we investigate on behalf of clients. And I guess it's that, it's that tension between often short-term commercial pressures versus a regulatory obligation. I agree with Tim that that can often be a reconcilable conflict because very often if you drill into a short-term commercial pressure, you realize that there may be other long-term strategic objectives which are better served by, let's say, a more ethical course of action. However, it's, it's often still there. And the, the, the commercial reality is that there are often these short-term pressures that cause people to put pressure onto their in-house counsel to perhaps sign something off or turn a blind eye to something which they would otherwise want to stand up about. I guess the key from my perspective to resolving those sorts of situations is to make sure that there is good corporate hygiene in place in the organization where you work, to make sure that there is a forum and a recognized and culturally appropriate way for an in-house counsel to raise those issues and seek that, that resolution of how you balance a short-term pressure with the long-term desire to do right. I guess for anyone looking for an in-house role, my number one piece of advice would be to seek out an organisation where you have that infrastructure and that support network, which allows you to balance those conflicts. Yeah, absolutely. And we were also joined by Rosamond Brown, who can't be here today. She's currently the SVP and Global Chief Counsel for ABB, and she's worked in-house at another large multinational organisations as well. And she was making clear, actually, that you know, she has had to take decisions in her career which may have, have harmed the career, but she felt she had to in order to comply with her regulatory and ethical obligations. So 
you know, as you say, it, it's, it's, it's a real thing and it does need to be thought about. And Kathy, perhaps from, from your perspective and the cases you may have to get involved in, in terms of potential whistleblowing or people worried about their own positions, do you see much of that in the in-house legal context? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, having advised probably many thousands of whistleblowers <laughs> in my career, I think some of the most difficult cases were where that conflict is realised. So where, as an in-house counsel, you have advised the company not to do something and they're deciding to go ahead and do it because effectively then you're up against privilege and um, how, you know, you, you don't have the choice to breach that privilege. Um, uh, you know, uh, we did talk about at the session how, you know, um, illegality, you know, where there is illegality, um, there's an issue, but in terms of breaching privilege as the lawyer, you're not in a position to um, report that and breach privilege except for in quite exceptional circumstances. So, you know, you are in a very real position if you're in a company which is not taking your advice and deciding to do something um, that you don't think is the most ethical course or is not in the best interests of others, perhaps not of the commercial interests of the company, but of others, um, you can find yourself in a difficult position and having to, you know, choose between your ethical position and your career, which is, you know, no easy position to be in at all. Um, so I think there are, you know, it is something that, um, as Catherine said, think about the structures that are in place when you are in-house counsel and particularly look at those whistleblowing arrangements and whether they are good and flexible and give you access to the independent non-executive directors on the board. So yeah, so that's something to, to you know, in terms of um, protecting yourself, as Catherine said, really looking at those procedures and making sure that they work in practice and that they are you know looked at reviewed that you've got access to the the independence the independent directors on the board and tim as kathy just alluded to there you know the, the position of an in-house counsel that wants to blow the whistle is sort of complicated by their obligations in terms of confidentiality and need to protect privilege so yeah have you mentioned the potential ways of you know, the exceptions to that which are fairly limited but perhaps we could just talk about those and, and any other ways that potentially we could escape that problem of, of potential reporting and the conflict that presents well privilege as a matter of principle privilege is absolute legal advice privilege and litigation privilege and the exception isn't the fraud exception in other words if you're advice is being used to perpetrate a wrongdoing, then you can report that, whether that's to the prosecuting authorities, regulatory authorities, or indeed, should you need to, your own regulator, the SRA, um, if you felt, for example, there was another lawyer within the firm or indeed outside the firm who was providing improper advice or acting improperly, then you would be free to report that there is um, a nice point, which we didn't discuss in the session, but let's discuss it now. There is a, a view amongst some regulatory practitioners that if a lawyer feels under a duty to report legal wrongdoing to his or her regulator, I'm talking about the regulator here, then you may be able to impart client privileged confidential information to that regulator. If you can't do that, or you feel it's too difficult, you could invite the regulator 
to serve a statutory notice if that requires investigation of misconduct by other lawyers, whether that's an external lawyer or internal. But this is a difficult area and one which in the end, specialist advice is pretty useful for because it, the, the complexity of the interaction of privilege and reporting is um, difficult. I mean, I'd add there that, you know, the regulator will talk to you about ethical issues on a hypothetical basis. That's one of the ways that I've helped people to make the decision is to actually talk to their regulator. They do have an ethics line and, you know, the SRA will talk hypothetically about an issue to help guide you around making that decision. But of course, taking legal advice, which sometimes lawyers can think, you know, lawyer, why do I need to take legal advice? But actually, you know, the lawyer who has their own client, themselves for a client, you know, is a fool. <laughs> so, you know, look, look to get some advice if you're in that position, because, you know, having a second opinion on that is really important. So we sort of looked at all the challenges and there are numerous challenges that we've just gone through. We've also spoken a bit, and Catherine and Kathy both mentioned about what good in-house environments look like. But how do you think in-house counsel can be encouraged to perform their duties ethically and properly? I mean, we've had we talked about having the right structures in place, but what about, for example, financial remuneration systems? And this is a topic that was raised recently in, a, in another podcast I was listening to. And Catherine, do you have a view on that? Um, so, yes, I, th I think you have to be careful with incentive structures that you don't take a conflict that already exists between a short term commercial performance, perhaps, and regulatory obligations and amplify that difficulty through through an incentive structure. So from the reality for most GCs is that most people have stock options and some form of bonus arrangement, which is continue, which which depends on the overall success of the company. But I guess it's incumbent on all of us to think about those structures and make sure that they don't um, aggravate pressures that already exist. So I think, Andrew, you had an, an interesting example of that, which was something that surprised the, the three of us when you described it. Yes, I was, I was talking after the conference to someone and he said that someone they knew was an in-house counsel and were actually paid on a commission basis um, in a financial institution, which struck me as quite perverse in a way because you know, an in-house counsel could be exercising their role perfectly properly if they advised that a transaction should not proceed because, for example, there might be concerns about money laundering and, you know, the, the reputational damage or the fines that could um, result from acting in that situation could, could be substantial. So trying to sort of boil it all down to the economic bottom line and measuring that as a success for uh, an in-house lawyer uh, seems to me to be quite difficult and really highlighting this sort of conflict that we've, we've been talking about. There are some real regulatory concerns here because you've got to be independent and you're prohibited under the SRA code of acting with a conflict of self-interest and duty. Now, stock options is one thing, but advising on a transaction where you might be thousands of pounds better off if, you, if the transaction lands, but it's against the interests of the company or shouldn't be pursued for all sorts of reasons. That seems to me to put the in-house lawyer into an extremely difficult position um, and would require enormous care and probably some independent 
advice by the company uh, if it's to withstand muster. Yeah, I imagine that that, that, that that arrangement was put in place to keep general counsel on a level with other people on the board who were getting commission and incentives. You know, so you, know, you can see why it becomes a difficult issue because if you're on the board and yet you're not getting the same bonus and pay structures that the rest of the people on the board are, do you get seen in a lesser light? So I can really see why there's an issue, issue there. One of the things that we, we were looking at also um, after, the, after the event was the um, way in which the provisions that Tim was talking about that are in the SRA code are now being looked at as being included into general, general counsel's contracts. And I think that is, you know, that and, and actually to have a board discussion about it so that, you know, everyone on the board is aware of that very clear statutory duty that you have as in-house counsel. And I think that because sometimes these things are just done because of groupthink and because that's the way it's always been done, not actually thinking about where those ethical and, and conflicting issues can arise. So having a specific discussion about it is a very good idea. You mentioned boards there, and I know during the course of our discussion, uh, Tim, you went on a, a bit of a journey as to whether or not uh, in-house lawyers should, should sit on boards. So just want to take us through that and where you ended up. I started by thinking you should always be independent. Therefore, as general counsel, you shouldn't be on the board. And I've come round to now thinking that if general counsel is on the board of a company, then the advice will be minuted and recorded. It has to be discussed at board level. General counsel still has got to discharge his or her statutory duties. And therefore, the advice becomes more prominent and the, and the non-execs and so on will be apprised of it rather than the thing being more readily swept under the carpet. So there are all sorts of arguments both ways. I've come round in favor saying let's have general counsel on the board of course the company's still got to be well run and one's still got to ensure that things are minuted and properly discussed but with those assumptions I, in the end i come down in favor of let's let's have gcs on the board Catherine, do you have a role in that in terms of roles in organizations seniority um board, board yes so uh, i i sit on our central management team um, we're not, I mean, we don't have sort of independent directors. We're not a listed company. So we have significantly more governance flexibility. Um, I think it's, I, I side with Tim that better decisions are made if you have a kind of legal voice in the room. Um, and I sometimes find that the GC role allows you to play devil's advocate in a way that you might not be able to if you're in a purely commercial situation. So if you're respected in the organization and people are comfortable with you doing so, you can sense, you can sense check things by perhaps putting an alternative case or speaking about regulatory obligations. And I think it's more difficult for people other than the GC to, to put that perspective. So the GC title gives you a little bit of protection, I think, on some of those discussions, if you look at it positively. As a result of these sort of scams, we are sort of understanding how, how it should be done. And you know, I'm assuming that there are lots of people that have had positive experiences uh, working in in-house organisations as well. And I know that um, we wanted to point out, I think you mentioned this, Tim, maybe not in the actual talk, but before it, that there are commercial, profession, commercial interest and pressures on uh, solicitors working in private practice as well in terms of should we take on particular clients should we 
you know, how we look at conflicts if there's a big case on the horizon. So perhaps we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that. In private practice, you could measure it this way. The SRA is conducting many, many more cases against people in private practice than they are general counsel. Now, that might be because they haven't got there. I suspect, actually, it's because the pressures in private practice cumulatively may actually be greater. What we're talking about here is a particular tension on decision-making at board level. But within general practice, uh, let's not forget handling client money and all the rest of it. There are plenty of pressures. I was just going to add that, you know, the Rick's example where it wasn't just general counsel, but external counsel who was criticized in that report. And that was because there was a failure to recognize who the client was and a, a kind of biased approach to um, a, 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 a dispute at board level. Yes. The tragedy of that case was that it, there were, it, was a, it, wasn't, it wasn't corruption, it was incompetence, and then trying to cover up that incompetence and not be transparent about some problems with their financial processes. That by the time of the, um, the scandal and the, and the board members being um, dismissed as they were, those issues were no longer relevant. But it was, so it was, it was all about you know, actually not being open and transparent. And both in-house counsel and external counsel were really siding with the executive as opposed to thinking about who their client was. Um, and so, um, you know, really those pressures, yeah, can apply both in-house and externally. And in terms of companies, who the client is, it's the, it's the whole board, not just the executive on the board. It's the old, old adage. Real lessons there. The cover-up is always worse than the crime. Mm. Another one of those. Mm. I think there's some of the learning points that have been about the relationship between general counsel and the external solicitor, because I think in that case, the general counsel are trained under the external solicitor and had a, the relationship going back a number of years. And the feeling was that the external counsel solicitor had been brought in to do a, to do a, a particular job rather than to act in, independently. And, and as a result, there's also a, a real move to, for companies to actually look at their external counsel and change them every three years in a similar way that you would for, for your auditors. So, you know, um, and, and that must be right because, you know, personal relationships can get very fixed in these circumstances and having that independence in the process is, is really important. Mm. Yeah, it's been a really good follow-up, some new points that we didn't introduce as well. So uh, people that have were there would have picked up something new and if you weren't there I'm sure you would have understood what we were talking about and got the gist of it so thank you all very much for your time both at the conference before the conference in preparation and today it's really very much appreciated particularly given how hot outside it how hot it is outside so thank you very much hope everyone enjoyed it goodbye thank you Andrew